All right. We got a couple of us from Element here with Dave Calloway, Brennan Hartford from the Committee on Tactical Emergency Casualty here. Both of them are in the Executive Committee. And we're going to wade our way through uh, the craziness known as uh, tactical care and uh, see what TECC does compared to TCCC, compared to NTOA and NTEC and all that kind of stuff. So right off the bat, uh, first question, um, what was the evolution of TECC and uh, when did you guys come around? Dave, I guess that's me. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, TECC came about formally in, in 2011 and, and the evolution had, had two different problems. One was uh, purely civilian, uh, working up through grassroots, different organizations, trying to figure out the best way to address high threat response. And then the other was trying to capture these lessons learned from the military. And the idea was, much like TCCC started with Bellamy's data out of Vietnam and then took the operational experience Mogadishu to create their guidelines, the TECC committee took operational experience from civilian response, but also took the 10 years of war from OIF, OEF, and said, hey, what are the existing best practices on the combat side? What's the data? Let's take this as our starting point and then look at where this applies in the civilian setting, where it doesn't apply, what the gaps are, and then how we can bring this together to actually create a response paradigm that makes sense in the civilian setting. Now, Dave, you were, you're actually a member of the Committee on Tactical Combat Casualty Care and do some stuff with Defense Health Board, too. Yeah, man. So I was on the, the TCCC committee for a decade, and then I was on the defense. I, I still am on the Defense Health Board Trauma and Injury Subcommittee. Um, we just got done doing the uh, the formal DOD after action report on OIF and OEF lessons learned in the medical setting. All right. So when you look at this from this grassroots effort of, of TECC and then getting into the civilian, what was uh, if, if we were going to compare and contrast or mainly contrast uh, TECC to uh, uh, Tactical Combat Casualty Care TC three, uh, which gained a lot of popularity early on. Uh, in, in the law enforcement and SWAT, SWAT side of things, uh, I guess because nothing else was out there. But if you kind of compare contrasts and talk about uh, why TECC is, is really needed uh, in the operational environment. Yeah, I mean, I, so there are a couple things. One is, so TCCC is tactical combat casualty care. I mean, by definition, your mission is a combat mission. You're going and killing dudes, right? You're killing, you're finding, securing, whatever, you know, you're, you're, you've got a mission to kill. And in the civilian setting, you're, if you've got casualties in a high-threat environment, it's a fundamentally, it's a rescue mission. I mean, even law enforcement, when they're responding, it's, the whole mission is to protect uh, your community and protect it, the lives of, of your civilians in your community. So it's a rescue-based mission. So right off the bat, the mission is different. Then you start looking at how do you get buy-in. In the military, again, you have different branches, you have different services, you have soft, you have conventional. But if you go in the civilian setting, you've got fire, you've got EMS, you've got ALS, BLS, you've got law enforcement, you've got SWAT. And so you've got all these different communities that have different languages, different paradigms of response. And so what we needed in order to get these best practices in play nationwide was a common language. And we had to figure out how to get all of these different groups bought in on a common language so that we could create this chain of survival where you say, if you're a patrol cop or if you're a SWAT medic or if you're an ER doc, you know the common language that you're putting forth in your community in order to create a chance of survival in a high-threat environment. So you mentioned uh, um, the law enforcement, things like that. Um, is, is TECC um, going after any other groups, civilians, teachers, anything like that? Is there, is there any permeation yeah. into that? Yeah, I mean, so in, in 
T-Triple C, the tactical combat casualty carrier, the tactical part is, you know, it's, it's military tactics. In the, in the civilian setting, tactics are the, the mechanisms by which you accomplish a mission. And so when we talk about TECC, you know, we borrow the, the concept of the chain of survival. And the first step is the first care provider. And this is what previously was called a bystander, but that's a little bit passive. But the first care provider can be, you know, the, the marathon runner on scene at the Boston bombing, the, you know, teacher at Virginia Tech, the dude selling popcorn at the Aurora Theater. I mean, these are, are people who need to be taught certain basic skill sets, mostly on hemorrhage control and how to interact with law enforcement, how to uh, find secure places. Um, but they are, they are the key link, man. And we know this from damage control resuscitation that, you know, once somebody starts to bleed, once they become coagulopathic, it's really hard to save them. So the sooner you stop the bleeding, the sooner you engage in uh, the medical or non-medical first response system, the better mortality is going to be, more people that are going to live. I mean, we got fire and law enforcement right here, man. What do you guys think? I agree. I agree with what Dave said. Um, with with, with uh, first care providers, um, with what I do with a, a large Midwestern law enforcement agency, um, we're branching out, reaching out to teachers specifically in regards to school shootings. And if we can teach them just some very basic uh, life-saving measures, I think in the next incidents we see coming in this country, we'll have a different uh, outcome as far as uh, life saved if we could just push those skills down to, to as many lay people as we can. From a fire perspective, I think also we see, uh, fire EMS perspective, we see uh, different geographical areas within the United States that are obviously working under different medical directors and different medical authorities as well as uh, laws within our individual states, and certainly TECC brings a commonality, common language, common treatment modalities uh, to affect the end user, obviously, which is the citizens that we take care of. Yeah, so, I mean, if you look at, you asked you know, the original question, or, you know, what are the distinctions? The distinct, distinctions are, you know, so what's a mission? And then also, what's your population? So, you know, TCCC is designed for 18 to 45-year-old, mostly dudes, but women also, but it was designed and, and studied around that core population. And then what are your mission uh, um, restrictions or constraints? Um, and, then, and then how do you get brought as buy-in? Because we know this, that you know, TCCC was deemed one of the you know, top three medical inventions of the war, but you know, the other ones are damage control, resuscitation, body armor. And then when we actually look at the data that, that gets submitted on how many units are actually applying TCCC, the number ain't that high, man. So in combat, if you look at pure TCCC guideline applications, most units aren't doing all of it. And so it's not, TCCC is awesome. I'm a lover, man. I've been involved with it for a decade. I think it's freaking awesome. But you have to look at a group like the Rangers that figured out how do you actually apply it. And if you look at the Ranger data that Cotwall published that said, you know, basically zero potentially preventable pre-hospital deaths, it wasn't just TCCC. It was TCCC applied in a way that made sense. So they had... Every single ranger trained uh, in either you know, for, you know familiarization, proficiency, or expertise. But every ranger knew where they fit in the in the uh, the chain of survival. Every medic knew the job below and above them. They knew the information above, below and above them. The docs supported both the science and the application. They briefed the command, and then most importantly, the command bought in and said, "Everybody's going to know it, and it's going to be a common language, and this is a core mission skill, and that's what needs to be applied." That framework needs to be applied in the civilian setting. That's what TECC is allowing. I got you. So even when we look at 
TC3 uh, obviously has done a lot to, to revolutionize the, the casualty management in, in the conflict, that, especially the conflict that we're in right now. Um, they're an evidence-based guideline. So when they're reviewing evidence or when you guys were reviewing evidence, um, a lot of those injuries were on people that had things like body armor like you brought up, which potentially is going to have a different pathophysiology of, of issues than the 13-year-old kid in a school that gets shot or the, the person at, at Virginia Tech. Yeah, I mean, so what I would say is, you know, TCCC's data, you know, some of it is based off, the, the military data side of it is actually observational data and, and um, it's good and it's revolutionary, but most of the supporting data for TCCC now actually comes from the civilian setting because they took these lessons learned. All the, all the massive transfusion protocols and the damage control resuscitation protocols have been validated in the civilian setting. And that's why they're now valid guidelines. You had revolutionary guys like John Holcomb who said, man, I think that this is the right thing to do and created damage control resuscitation. And then guys like Rasmussen and Eastridge and all these other, you know, big time, Peter Reed, big time leaders who said, we're just going to do it. And then they collected data on it retrospectively, but then they brought it to the civilian trauma centers to prove it on civilian traumas. And that's, you know, the, from the science standpoint, the prompt trial and the proper trial, these huge trials that have revolutionized civilian medicine, you know, that's where the data is. And so it's a combination of civilian and military data. On the wounding pattern, so you're right, man. So is there a study out there that shows a cat tourniquet works on a kid? No. I mean, there's a little bit of tourniquet data on kids from, from Bastion, but we don't know, man. And so part of what the CTEC the committee is doing is, putting out what's best practice, what we know, but also trying to drive the research towards what we need to know. Because where are the mass casualties going to be? I mean, they're going to be in schools, they're going to be in theaters, and they're going to be kids. And so do we know damage control resuscitation works with kids? No, man. So we think some of it does, but we're trying to push that research. Do we know tourniquets? You know, do kids get attention to pneumothoraces? Is a crike, which is the airway of choice in TCCC, is a crike the airway of choice in a kid? Well, not if you're under eight, because that's what the a, you know the American Association of Pediatrics and Emergency Medicine guidelines say. You know, you're not going to do a crack in that kid. So, trying to come to grips with you know where are the differences uh, and where are the similarities is is really the uh, the core mission right now. Um, you, you mentioned some stuff as far as the the research looking into some of those things that are specific to the civilian population. Uh, what working groups do you guys have? Uh, going on or actively going on or where are you looking to, to move into uh, as far as research? Um, working groups. Um, some of the new ones we're looking at, uh, USAR, Technical Rescue. Uh, we just created a working group with that. Canine, there's a working group for canine. Uh, create guidelines for them. Um, uh, prolonged field care is one we're looking at. Um, we also have the, you know, the, the group that's working on junctional hemorrhage huge problem in, in Afghanistan, uh, but, you know, looking at one, how big of a problem is, is it in the U.S., but also what are the, the effective strategies, and then one of the, the, the psych mitigation group that's been around for about a year and a half working on, um, you know, how do we build psychological resilience in our first responders and in our community, um, both before and during and after an event, and then the, um, one of the key ones is a pediatric working group um, that's been, been driving a lot of the, uh, the the research and the uh, the training on this side. 
Yeah, and you're even looking at things that are just relatively new in, in all of medicine, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the like one of the more recent ones has to do with Reboa, which again, this is this is a classic example of you had you know 1954 military doc who do, tries to do some endovascular occlusion of the aorta for this uh, intra-abdominal hemorrhage disappears, comes back, and military docs looking at junctional hemorrhage um, because of the problems in Afghanistan with complex dismounted blast injury, they. They come back to this and they say, hey, maybe this is a valid technique. They, they are able to do a bunch of animal trials funded by the military, but then it goes to the civilian setting, to the civilian trauma centers to get validated and tested and they get these case series. And so the question then becomes, you know, as a committee, you know, where do we push this out? And this goes to this man of, of when we talk about the chain of survival, you know, essentially we're talking about everything before definitive care, which is the OR at a trauma center. And so something like Reboa, which is retrograde a novascular occlusion of balloon occlusion of the aorta. I mean, that's essentially a central line placed in the in the femoral artery that blocks off the aorta and blocks off blood flow. So it's an internal, similar to cross clamping of the aorta. So that probably has a role. Do we know where? Well, London Ambulance has done three cases in the pre-hospital environment. Is that applicable in the US? I don't know, man. We need to start looking at the data. Is it applicable at first receiving facilities that are not trauma centers, but maybe have a 30-minute critical care air transport time to a trauma center? Probably. Um, and, and the problem is we don't know the data on like how people are dying in active shooter events. We don't have a great consolidation of, of near miss data on, you know, when people get shot, where they're getting shot. A lot of it's happening, not in urban areas. And so we need to have solutions for that. I got you. Um, what about uh, people who kind of signed on with TECC as far as integration? Uh, I know there's some, DHS and, and representatives at this last meeting, uh, are they bought into it or what's the status on that? Yeah, man. I mean, so the, the power of the committee is is the, the components and the members of the committee. I mean, so you've got, you know, Brendan Hartford, and I won't name your agency, but large metropolitan uh, police agency, you know, Chris Cook, you've got, you've got operational leaders uh, from Fairfax and Arlington in California. You've got uh, cops, paramedics, firefighters physicians, trauma surgeons, that's the power of the committee. But because they've been able to bring together all these different experts, they've got groups like NTOA, the National Tactical Officers Association, who's endorsing these guidelines. You've got International Association of Firefighters. Um, you've got DHS's recent uh, guidance on surviving active shooter and IEDs that specifically says all first responders should be trained in the evidence-based active emergency casualty care guidelines. I mean, when DHS... Uh, federal agency is starting to say that all first responders should be trained. That's a good, um, powerful umbrella statement. It, it is up to the states. It's up to the local, you know, departments to do the training. But we started as a grassroots movement. It, this came from individuals who were riding the rigs, riding the cop cars, and and wanted to do the right thing. And they built this up. And now, you know, you've got a great grassroots movement. Plus, you've got you know the support. I mean, even even recently, the American College of Surgeons Hartford Consensus. The last three documents they put out have basically, you know, restated and supported the TECC guidelines. And this is huge when the American College of Surgeons is supporting these guidelines. I mean, that's that's big time. That's awesome. Yeah, I guess that brings us to the next one is is there's so many out there that I think the it gets a little confusing on where everybody everybody stands. But uh, so as far as the NTOA and, and you know, we've done stuff with the NTOA. I know Kevin Gerald, he's a he's a freaking stud. Um uh, sits on does he sit on the on uh, portion of the the committee or yeah so we got we've got uh, 
you know, as they call them, big pipe hitters like Kevin Durrell and Sean McKay that are on uh, that are on the committee. Um, so, you know, we tap into you know, people who have been national leaders in, in tackle EMS, um, but it's beyond it's beyond tackle EMS. It's you know, high threat routine operations that you know you've got your conventional forces that are showing up on a high threat environment. They need to switch modes of operation from routine call to high threat. So we've got these leaders across all these different agencies, Rancho Cucamonga, that are the people who have been doing the work um, and really putting these in, in a place. And they're the ones who are shaping these guidelines. Yeah, I mean, you, shit, all I do is help coordinate meetings to bring these people together. So you, you brought French Cucamonga, who, who uh, I think just like Arlington took a, a pretty aggressive stance on implementing Rescue Task Force, which kind of brings us into what you mentioned before. I read a document by the IFF, uh, International Association of Firefighters, and uh, National Fire Academy, the boast uh, uh, very pro, uh, obviously, our Rescue Task Force, the implementation of that capability into active shooter events to augment law enforcement um, for, I, I guess, their main focus is, is uh, getting in there and rapidly treating uh, casualties in a CCP and the rapid evacuation of them. Um, so with that, RTF is, is, I guess, a fairly newer thing to a lot of people. Uh, I think it got brought to a lot of firefighters and first responders' attention from the the – IFF position statement uh, supporting RTF and then supporting TECC as the medical modality or treatment modality as uh, uh, for the RTF. So wh- where do you see the RTFs go? Uh, probably even Chris on that one, man, uh, for fire departments. Um, I think RTF actually, the implementation of it is, again, something that um, seems to be a strong pushes on him from the local and individual organizations. There seems to be a little bit of misinformation that gets sent out basically on the tactics and procedures, uh, obviously the common denominator is utilizing uh, T- uh, TECC as the medical treatment modality. Um, but we, we try to look towards uh, those people, as you mentioned, Ranch Cucamonga, Cucamonga, as well as Arlington for kind of being the pipe hitters in that arena to try to develop appropriate uh, procedures. The problem, the problem we run into from a fire perspective is that we all have different uh, concerns based on our labor, what our availability is and attacking uh, rescue task force. And so, uh, maybe having some uh, some boilerplate guidelines that would be available would be beneficial. So right, so so the whole concept is shrinking the distance of point of injury to to first care stabilization and then to definitive care. And so the model that we always talk about is is access assessment stabilization and, and evacuation or extraction. So those are the four components that you have, right? If you're going to take care of a casualty, that's those are the four things you need to do, no matter where you are. And the evacuation could if you're in a hospital gets changed to you know patient movement. But you need to access, assess, stabilize, and then move the patient. And so the question is, how do you most quickly, most effectively do that? RTF is one really effective model, but just like TECC, the application needs to be based upon what resources you have locally. So, you know, the other model is the warm corridor. You know, our job is not to say, here is what you have to do. It's to say, here are the trauma guidelines for high threat care. And here's how you, you know, you think about them in a, in a tiered threat environment. So direct threat and indirect threat. Now, use your local resources to figure out what makes the most sense so that you can shorten that distance. If you've got a bunch of cops and they're super well-trained in medical stuff, maybe the police, you know, law enforcement is the only person who does stuff. If you've got a limited number of law enforcement or it's mostly patrol or you don't have a SWAT team, you know, maybe you do the combined RTF. If, if you've got you know, other resources and you want to buy a bunch of ballistic vests, maybe that's how you mitigate the threat. There are a bunch of techniques out there for mitigating that threat and shortening the distance, you know, the, the local leadership is going to be the one who 
judge is the best way to do that. Dave, I have a question for you. Based on uh, you know the information that you're that you're providing to us, is, is there a, a central repository of, of information that uh, that administrator that I could actually drive an administrator towards? Uh, with so many national organizations that are kind of springing up, there seems to be a lot of information put out based. And, and some of these people are from academia that have some significant credibility. Where, where do I send a fire administrator or a, a law enforcement administrator? Which direction do they need to go to? I mean, the, the, the CTEC guidelines and, and the thought process and the papers are all on the website, and it's www.c-tecc.org. Um, and on there, you can get both the guidelines for, for the provision of care, but then also recommendations um, for how you break it down based on your skill set levels. So if you're you know, law enforcement, BLS, ALS, um, you can get that information. Um, and then it also has links to the the uh, organizations that have put out endorsements for, for the guidelines, which are, at this point, you know, a majority of national professional organizations in this field are, are supporting TECC as a standard care and high-threat pre-hospital medicine. Cool. All right. What was the, what was the deal that you talked about uh, before? Because I think there's an interesting difference in some of the, the I don't want to say guidelines, but philosophies, methodologies, uh, and, and guidelines that are out there. Um, it was you hit the access, assess, stabilize, and evacuate, extract uh, type of thing. So on access, I think a lot of places out there kind of focus on uh, um, immediate, you know, threat suppression. Where we, we've seen, you know, a lot of cases we'll, we'll go into in here in a second, uh, where access has actually been a problem. But what I wanted to hit on is is we we kind of focus in on on the issues of let's say uh, school shooting, uh, theater shooting, things like that. But but really, you can apply a lot of these things for day to day operations, uh, and not just in a in a active violent type of uh, type of situation. So the the cop or the fireman that rolls up on a vehicle accident. Uh, still potentially due to damage to the vehicle, it's still going to potentially have an access problem. Right. Uh, still going to, I know in, in South Carolina, uh, in the, the northern county there, uh, it's had like four saves with tourniquet utilization at a patrol officer level. Uh, and I think three of those four have been uh, uh, on, uh, on vehicle accidents. Um, so it just kind of shows that TECC really blends itself, not just in a violent situation, but potentially on a day-to-day operation of, of right. you know, whether they responded to, Somebody just fell through a glass table or something, and stopping the the bleeding also. So it kind of permeates into uh, other sort of tornadoes in right. Oklahoma. So that's the all hazards, all hazards. So it's an all hazards approach that's hidden on the second and third order uh, benefits of TECC. So you know the, the T and TECC tactics has to do with how you solve the problem. So you guys are fire and law enforcement. I'm a, I'm a friggin' ED doc. We have different tactics for how we address a problem, um, and so it's not just you know, the dudes in the black ninja suits, um, which is conventionally what's been thought of for tactical stuff. You know, that's where the, that's where a lot of the core um, knowledge has come from. And frankly, you know, a lot of the core repository of information is going to be in the, in the specialized teams. But what we found, and this is what the Rangers showed again, is that just having super highly trained, you know, medics is not how you successfully save lives. Those people need to be both providers of care, but they need to be team leaders and they need to be trainers. And everybody needs to know what to do. And so then you push this out in the spilling setting. You're like, all right, man. So now we have this paradigm of, you know, access, assess, stabilize, evacuate. And we have this treatment paradigm that says we're going to do different things based on whether we're in a direct threat, meaning the external threats uh, to my life and my casualty's life is greater than the injury or indirect threat, which just means, you know, I'm in a threatening environment um, and I need to act fast. 
So now you have a threat-based paradigm that, that lets you think about it. And it could be a guy with a gun. It could be a building class. It could be the rollover that, you know, the car is not on fire yet, but it's got a gas leak. And so once you train that mindset of thinking about things in a threat-based paradigm and having skill sets that you can apply based on what the threat level is, then you can apply it in your day-to-day operations or you apply it and shift into high-threat operations seamlessly. I got you. Um, and I guess one of the things that, that we see on there that, that you guys hit is you, you have something uh, in your guidelines based on being able to have uh, ingress and egress. And so I'll go on a, on a tangent here just because we've been doing stuff on uh, halogen breaching and things like that is for for those people that are listening that are, that are law enforcement and things like that is, uh, I guess, in, in TC3, you know, your, your best medicine was fire superiority was one of the mantras that was out there for a long time uh, where things shift potentially a little bit because of the environment and the civilian side where um, we don't even have the opportunity potentially to employ fire superiority if we can't make access into it. So when we looked at the 27th, uh, you know, September 27, 2006 with, with, uh, um, Platte Canyon, and five days later, uh, the threat evolved, learned from the previous guy, and evolved his tactics, uh, techniques, and procedures, and uh, attacked uh, Nickel Mines, uh, uh, the single-room Amish school. Uh, and then six months later, we had uh, another evolution uh, with with uh, greater efficacy with Cho and Virginia Tech, um, all, all a evolution of, of making it real difficult for law enforcement to get in. Uh, I think even DHS in their last paper they just put out, uh, that 70-page deal last week even, brought up a scenario of having a denied access for law enforcement to get in, uh, purposely put on by threats. When we look at Nairobi using fire you know, as area denial. Um, so that's a pretty big part of your well, guidelines well, right, that are so different. Think about it. So the, what's the point of the statement, the best medicine on the battlefield is fire superiority? The point of that statement is that on the battlefield, the major thing that limits your access and in your ability to assess and stabilize a casualty is the enemy laying down suppressed fire or, or effective fire and preventing you from, you know, from actually safely taking care of a casualty. So in combat, that's going to be your major barrier to, you know, accessing a casualty. In the civilian setting, though, that's not. That may be one of them. But just think about the cases you just talked about. So Virginia Tech padlocking the doors. That's an access issue. You can't do shit until you access the casualty. So you need to be able to breach those doors, either hal in a car, or bust a window or whatever. That needs to be in your mindset because that's not the first thing in the mindset of a care provider. What about Aurora? The access problem was that there are 1,400 people running out of the theaters, flooding into the parking lot and preventing fire and EMS from actually getting anywhere near the casualties. That's an access problem. Fire superiority, are you going to smoke 1,400 civilians so that you can get to the injured ones? It seems a little bit counterintuitive and perhaps not productive. The whole point, though, no, is that you need to access. And, and the, the historical challenges with like, um, the way that you know, I'm a physician, right? So I take PHLS, I take ATLS, I take ACLS. You know, all of these assume that I am standing next to the casualty in a climate-controlled, threat-free environment. So start. All right, you're an ACLS guy. Start. You're, you're, okay, the casualty on the bed. I didn't have to put them there. I didn't have to move them there. I didn't have to extract them from a collapsed building or a smoking car. I have immediate access. That's already assumed. That's not the reality in the operational environment. That's where things like breaching um, and, and um, you know, vertical access, things like that matter. But it also matters because how you access the casualty potentially affects how you evacuate or extract it. No, that, that, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Um, just for a side note on there, um, you know, with Cho, you know, when he was in Norse Hall, you know, he was firing one round every 3.79 to 4.14 seconds that he was in there. But when he's in the classroom, 
you know, he was firing, you know, one shot every second, you know, with the Glock 19 and Walther P22, one in each hand, uh, firing from left to right in those classrooms. Uh, hitting a lot of people, I think at all 51 that he hit, uh, it was averaged at 3.41 rounds per, per person. Uh, and there was obviously a difficulty because of the three breach points with the chains and padlocks. Um, yeah, and I think what that says is those, those people that responded there, you know, did what they were, uh, the best they could with, with the training they had. But I think it's, it's important to take in those guidelines and make people aware, uh, that when we look at medical, we look at casualty management, that it's a system. And there's a lot of processes in that. And if our lane is medical, a lot of a lot of doctors, not yourself, of course, but other doctors that, that sit on there, look at it from that lens. Uh, and and when these things come out, that there may be a more full spectrum approach that's actually going to save lives. Because uh, Joe killed himself as soon right. as they were able to breach in. And so and so you just hit on what I think is the strongest uh, aspect of the the committee on tactical emergency casualty care is that. So on the committee, we have plan holder teachable seat members. We have SOCOM, active duty, and, and, and retired. We have uh, special operations law enforcement. We have patrol. We have fire, EMS. We have USAR. We have academic docs. We have non-academic. Um, and then we have some international members. So we are able to have these discussions where, you know, I, I, my lens, my perspective is as a physician, you know, one with a little operational experience, but mostly a physician. That's different than the guy who's, you know, going on the ladder every single day. And so what we can do is we can throw out our perspectives and with this group, hammer it out to say, okay, what is actually going to make the most sense? You know, and this was, this was the power of the TCCC committee, um, you know, especially in the early days when it had, you know, a lot of strong operational medic uh, participation. There's no other group in the civilian setting that has that, that combination of operational, non-medical, civilian, and then uh, also medical professionals that are putting these guidelines together. doesn't exist. Awesome. Um, kind of trying to wind it up a little bit here. Um, this is probably more for Brennan. Uh, from a large law enforcement uh, agency, I think a lot of people, uh, as, as Dave has brought up, may see tactical emergency casualty care as something that they want to implement in their SWAT program mm-hmm. uh, versus permitting it down. I think you guys have, uh, in your case, is, is put an emphasis on trying to get it down to to that patrol level, who a lot of times will be that first person on scene, uh, versus having a team and, and you know whether you're full time or part time, you know those part time teams out there, you know probably average what a 45 minute time from the pager go off uh, to coordinate that team. Uh, obviously, those guys may be working patrol or narcotics or something else, and they may be able to get there, but they're not there as a coordinated team. So, um, so what does that look like from a law enforcement standpoint, or what do you guys envision as far as pushing that down to the patrol level, getting the, what kind of capabilities, you know, uh, are you focusing on? Agreed, agreed. Um, I mean, most SWAT teams that, that now have a tactical medical program, um, some have previously implemented TCCC, some are, are transitioning to TECC or have implemented fully TECC to, to some extent. Um, and that's kind of, you know, taking care of itself, the SWAT teams. Where we need to do is transition, like you said, these skills down to the patrol level because active shooter situations, uh, not only in my personal opinion, but in my agency's opinion, active shooters are not a SWAT response uh, problem. It's a patrol problem. They are going to be the, the, the initial responders that deal with the threat. I mean, historically, you look back at these events, um, if, it, if, if the offender is not self, self-inflicting and ended a resolution, it's a patrol officer that's going to end, end the problem. SWAT will be there as a follow-on to clean up and, and completely search the location, but they're going to be an afterthought. 
So we need to transition these TEC skills now to the patrol level and, like you mentioned, um, to the narcotics and gang officers and other ones that are going to be responding to these because they're working on the street all the time. Um, I think most agencies are starting to do that fairly well. Um, they're, and, and everybody's doing it a little different, but I think the, the big um, success, for lack of a better word, for law enforcement is they're getting buy-in from their agencies to see that this is a, a skill that patrol needs. And uh, everybody's skinning this cat a little different, but basically they're creating uh, a self-aid buddy aid program based on the TEC guideline, TECC guidelines. Um, to you know, be able to provide self for the, care for themselves, their partners, or uh, injured civilians when they enter these types of, of environments. Um, yeah, that's a good point. I think the, I think the, the beauty of that too is uh, you know recently when there was a change of change of guard uh, with the Thames chair for the NTOA, I think that was one of the first things Kevin Gerald put out was a document emphasizing these skills get get pushed down to a patrol officer, which is uh, for. Huge. For, yeah, it's huge, man. For the National Tactical Officer Association to put that in there, I think that was yeah. that was brilliant. Um, We've also what, seen actually, uh, in addition with the, the alert training program too, from a national point. scale. Yeah. Good point. Um, yeah. yeah, what yeah. is the deal with alert? Because um, I know they're they're a big standard that's out there. Yeah, I mean, uh, so the, the alert FBI. program out of out of Texas State is uh, the FBI's official partner for for law or for uh, active shooter training uh, domestically. Um, great program, great training program. They, they Train thousands of, uh, of people all over the country in attitude response. I think internationally too. I think they're doing stuff internationally yeah, out of San Marcos. Yeah, Texas, and they, you know, they've been a, a big uh, supporter and, a, and an important partner with TECC. And, and you know, the TECC uh, guidelines are, are their medical uh, trauma response guidelines that they tr- they train as part of their active shooter standard response for alert two. I think for right? alert two. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and that's part. I mean, so alert, and then the different partners. I mean. In between, you know, FEMA um, has allocated uh, somewhere close to two million dollars in the last four years to train TECC through their technical assistance program, and then through the George uh, George Washington uh, grant this year. You know, and, and with all that in the last four years, on the order of a hundred to one hundred twenty thousand uh, first responders and physicians have been trained in tactical emergency casualty care, and so that's law, that's patrol, SWAT, ALS, PLS, fire. ED docs, PAs across the country, and and, and you brought probably the, almost every state. You brought up the TA thing. Uh, anybody that wants to can contact DHS, right, and request yep, a, a TA. Absolutely. So the FEMA technical assistance, the TA program, um, FEMA puts on these programs where you just you get on their website, you request a, a TA. Um, they they have all kinds of different ones they can do, hazmat, etc. But um, they have a specific program for for TECC, and it's uh, you know just requested by the agency. FEMA funds it. They fly out instructors to do a one-day seminar on how to stand up a local TECC program, um, and we've done probably twelve or fourteen of them in the last two years. Dave, you know this might have already been brought up a little bit originally, but this also kind of permeates on we talk about uh, first care providers. That kind of falls in line with that, um, with within the mission of, of what uh, TECC is looking at. Is, can you expound on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, so we know, and so in the original TECC guideline in two thousand eleven. You know, they said that, you know, we said that the first link is is the first care provider. And that historically was called a bystander. Um, okay. And what, what we've said is, you know, crowd management and crowd control is complex, especially in a, in a dynamic environment. You have to figure out how to do scene safety. But these people, you know, need to be trained because they're going to be the first ones to access cash. We saw this in Boston. LAX, man, like no one was in there for right. 
what, 33 minutes or 23 minutes. They were certainly their, their first care providers standing by who could have been first care providers. Um, and any place where you've got a barricade suspect, Aurora, any of these places, um, properly trained you know, citizens can be the first care providers. And they can be that first key link in, in the TCC chain of survival. And, and they should be. They need to be. Teachers need to be trained. Our communities need to be resilient. Um, and this needs to come from the professional community to be pushed down and supported. Um, but local governments need to support this. And you know, they need to make their communities strong and, and uh, psychologically robust you know, to be able to handle some of these events. Yeah, I know from the federal side, I think they're looking at uh, uh, starting a their public access hemorrhage control type program for that reason when we look at Boston, uh, looking at putting uh, a capability right next to AEDs, uh, whether it's in an airport, in a movie theater, and things like that, that have uh, tourniquets, it has hemostatics. Uh, I know the TECC committee doesn't endorse technically products and stays unbiased as far as that goes, but so I'll I'll throw it out. Um, I know Tactical Medical Solutions has their traumatic stuff that, that is you know, out there, Griffin Logistics um, is pretty much hitting on there. So do you see a movement towards that as far as, uh, as far as those things coming out into public access type systems for, for what you've been talking about? Yeah. I mean, I think that, that, you know, there are multiple ways to skin the cat and the cat that needs to be skinned is you need to figure out, you know, how everyone's got quick access to provide hemorrhage control in a, in a high threat environment. And that means, Training your people in improvised care means making sure your citizens are trained and empowered to act and feel um, feel that it is their responsibility. And then it means you know giving them capability, and that capability um, may be these hemorrhage control kits. I think uh, certainly in in high risk environments or potentially high threat environments, um, you should have them there. I think they should be in hospitals. To be honest, you know <laughs> if you think about no 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 one thinks about hospitals because they say oh it's a hospital they're all kind of medical care. You go smoke a bunch of people in the cafeteria uh, in a large you know, hospital area and, well, they can put an AED pad on the bleed, you know, or they have to do something improvised right. and figure so out how to get them. Right. And, and, you know, it's, I think, again, a lot of this comes down to money and it comes down to, you know, is the cost worth the, rel- you know, the, the mitigation of the relative risk? And I would say the relative cost of these kits is, is pretty low compared to the potential um, for life-saving. Right. Yeah, and I think a lot of people fall under the that ludic fallacy of, like, rolling the dice and weighing that out. But, uh, yeah. you know, you look at nickel mines, you know, I, I don't think they would have planned on that occurring uh, in 2006 or, or Littleton or Aurora or any of that also. Um, but you brought up a good point, and it's kind of the last point I want to bring up is um, I was looking through a bunch of different guidelines uh, specific for the civilian sector, and you brought up improv, which is, uh, in my opinion, like really pretty critical uh, capability because uh, no cop is going to be rolling into these events with you know ten tourniquets and and hemostatics coming out of their butts and and all this kind of kit and aid bags. Being a regular patrol officer, um, it, where do you feel about improv? You mentioned it in the guidelines, uh, fairly important because everybody's going to run out of crap. Man. Yeah. So so a couple things. One is. Um, you know, so we know that an improvised tourniquet doesn't work as well as um, an approved commercial tourniquet, but they still work. And the, the key is you have to understand the concepts of, of, of how it works. And when we talk about improvised care, mostly what we're talking about is hemorrhage control. And, and again, mostly also what we're talking about is either pressure dressings or tourniquets. They can be made, and you just need to know the basic concepts for it. You need to train people to do it, and you need to train people just to think about 
Uh, but situational awareness of what do you have around you that could be a tourniquet when you're riding in a car, riding a bus, when you're on a plane, when you're in a hospital. There's all kinds of stuff that you can use to create a, a constricting band, a windlass, and a securing device. You also need to realize that pressure is pretty damn effective. And the problem with pressure in a tactical environment is your hands are out of the, the situation and you can't do anything with it and you need to do something else. If you've got 10 people, you know, it, it may be okay that you have one person who's applying pressure for hemorrhage control. And they do need to know that that's okay. Um, and so I think, I think improvisation is, is a natural spinoff of, of being a student of the game and, and knowing what the problem is. Um, and then also, more importantly, being empowered to act. Because I think the biggest problem with improvisation is, is people don't feel empowered to act, so they don't think about how to solve the problem, and then they don't do it. And you were just in, Chris was just, you were just involved in a, teaching an improv TECC at the Midwestern Tactical Officers Association. How do you feel like that was perceived from everybody? I think uh, it kind of goes in line with what Dave was saying. I think once the providers were empowered to act and realized that they can think outside the conventional medical equipment that they're trained with, uh, I think they rocked it. They, they actually rose up to the occasion, um, and for very little money for training, they were actually able to, to do really good jobs, particularly mitigating, mitigating hemorrhage um, and other injuries that would be associated with uh, the use of TECC. Yeah, I mean, so it's perfect is the enemy of good enough, and the only wrong action is inaction. You know, when you've got somebody bleeding in front of you, the only wrong thing to do is not to act. And, you know, if you put on a tourniquet that's not 100% effective, but it slows the bleeding down enough until I get there and I can put on a real tourniquet because I've got it in my kit, you save the person's life. You know, if you, if you put pressure on it and you slow bleeding so that they lose 250 cc's instead of a liter, that's a big fat deal. You know, that matters. And, and what the person needs to know is it's okay. You need to act and it's okay. Um, and I think that that's the hardest thing with non-trained providers um, and first care providers to get through their head is, man, it is your, it's not only okay, it is your responsibility as a citizen in our communities to act. It's your responsibility to act. It's your responsibility to save your neighbor's life. It's your responsibility to save that person's life who's sitting next to you. Cool. And the thing I, lo- the thing I like about the improv and, and the training for it is it gives you a mindset. And if you can, if you can grasp the improv stuff and have that mindset, it will, like David Chris just said, it'll give you the, you know, and empower you to act. But what it will also do is raise your confidence level that when you do have, you know, a commercial tourniquet with you, I got this. You know, this is nothing for me. I, I've done this with, you know, bed sheets and a, and, a, and a broom handle. Now I've got a real tourniquet. Wow, this is easy for me. Does it also um, kind of give you a little bit more situational awareness? Yeah, I agree. Right, yeah. seeing a frame on the wall, breaking it, and it's four windlasses. Exactly. Um, but really, in your world, the improv, which is potentially, if we look at a pace, like a primary alternate contingency emergency, maybe an emergency for normal first responders, but with some of your folks in narcotics or UC work, that's going to be the primary, potentially. I agree. I agree with that. I like that. I like the improv training for, for a narcotics officer, and I think that's something you know, that, that, that agencies need to explore. But, but also what you said, Sean, is, and this is what we try to teach all the time, is primary alternate contingency emergency. And so when you train somebody in that mindset, by the time you get to contingency and emergency, you're getting into improv. Right. So if I'm like, my primary is my softy, my you know, alternate is my cat, my contingency is my SWAT T, mm-hmm. uh, now I need an emergency. Well, so once you train everybody in that mindset, it's easy to say, okay, man, so you know, when you're on SWAT, Here's what you got. And then, but you're also running, you know, UC. Well, still the same mindset, but now E moves up to P and you're like, now I got to come up with a bunch of different emergency. You know, my primary is going to be, you know, busting out the, the window or the uh, picture frame, taking 
a side of it making the win list and I'm going to take a pillowcase and that's going to be my, okay, but what's going to be my alternate right. or what else do I got around here? It's going to be my belt. Um, and then trying those out and testing them. Um, and you start to learn what, what, uh, what works and what doesn't and then how to think around the problem. Right. And just kind of seeing things different. So you're that guy who's with his family. You're the off-duty cop with his family in Aurora. Uh, being able to eliminate that threat and then potentially start acting uh, immediately and treating, which is what's what's in your environment, right? Just having a, a kind of game uh, essay. Um, I think it's a good idea too. Uh, a lot of people roll around with notebooks or whatever, but wherever you find yourself, even just write down whatever acronym you use. You know, whether it's March or whatever, and you're sitting in an airplane terminal or sitting in a cab or whatever, writing March down that list and just looking around you and seeing what would you control massive hemorrhage with? What would you deal with an airway with? What would you deal with? You know, going down that list and finding what it is, you know, even getting to the, the E on evacuation and cutting carpet uh, around that casualty using it as soft litter or something. Yeah, you get in that mental game and you start, I mean, for anybody who does operational stuff, they know that like, that's the mindset that you get into, regardless of what your operational environment is, you get in the mindset of starting to, to play the contingency game all the time. And so the trick is to start doing it with trauma care um, and do it a lot so that you know, no matter where you are, your, your mind and the background is starting to actually think through these options. Cool, cool, cool. All right, well, listen, let's wrap it up. I appreciate your time. And uh, can people get a hold of you through the website, through the CTEC website you get before? Yep. Awesome. All right. www.c-tecc.org. Right. Drop the mic. Done.